and it's also, it'll be up here. Um, we're continuing our series, Being a Cross-Eyed Church. This is the fifth sermon in the series, and we're finally finishing chapter one. Uh, it took five weeks, uh, but praise be to God. Uh, last week, we considered the cross and how the cross directs the posture of the church. And, and um, we talked about four things. The first was that how the cross of Christ divides. And if the cross of Christ, cross of Christ divides, it um, should create in us a burden for the perishing, because there are those who are being saved and there are those who are perishing. We also said that the cross offends. Uh, that's an, an offensive message. But the implication is the message should be offensive, not the messenger. Uh, thirdly, we said the cross of Christ saves. And the implication is if the message saves, then we need to be faithful, not change that message, but stay faithful to the message. And fourthly, we said the cross of Christ humbles. And the implication is that we must never act superior to one another because we are saved, we are called um, by God's grace. And so my challenge to the congregation was this. Imagine what the church Imagine how good the church would be for the world. Imagine how good the church would be for the world if we lived by this message. And imagine how glorifying the church would be to God if we were truly transformed by the message of the cross. That was sort of the charge last week. This week, as Paul moves on to the next issue, we're addressing the topic of boasting. Christianity, the gospel, and boasting. So, with that... We're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're reading verses 26 to 31. So please hear now the reading of God's holy word. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we pray for your blessing now. It's only by your Spirit opening our eyes, not just the physical, but the eyes of our hearts, to behold your living word. And I pray that as we do so, you would instruct us, you would teach us. In fact, Lord, you would feed and nourish our souls because we are hearing voices all throughout the week from other people, from the world. We're hearing our own, but we need most clearly to hear your voice. And so free us from distraction, free us from anxieties and worries, free us from burdens and struggles that we bring in here, and give to us a calmness of heart so that we would hear the voice of our Father, and that we would be instructed and built up in his word. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Uh, I heard a story this week about a doctor, an engineer, and a politician, and they were, um, you know where this is going, huh? They were debating with one another. They were boasting which profession was uh, most significant, which was most uh, important. And as they were boasting, um, the, the way they decided they could end this argument is, is they said, why don't we figure out which profession is oldest? Once we figure out what's oldest and has been around longest, then we can decide which is most important, which is most significant. 
and then we could stop boasting, and whoever wins, they only have the right to boast. And so the doctor said, well, without a physician, mankind could not have survived, so I'm sure that mine is the oldest profession. And the engineer quickly responded, well, before life on this earth began, there was complete chaos, and it took an engineer to create order out of chaos, so engineering must be the oldest. Wait, interrupted the politician triumphantly. Wasn't it a politician who created the chaos in the first place? <laughs> you know, the story of boasting, you know, boasting is something so natural to every one of us. And sometimes we have the uh, misimpression that boasting is only for those who seem or are, you know, visibly, vocally arrogant and, and proud, and you say, oh, that guy boasts. But, but you know what? It's evident in the lives of those who are seemingly humble. Just because you're quiet, just because you appear humble, doesn't mean you don't boast. Imagine this scenario. You're at a dinner party. You're with somebody, and you overhear a conversation. You hear somebody say to another person, not to brag, but I'm the smartest person I know. And you roll your eyes at them because they're unashamedly boasting in their intelligence. And the person that you're with says to you, who says things like that? I mean, I'm not dumb by any means, but I would never claim to be the smartest person I know. At least I have an accurate view of myself. And you chuckle to yourself because they've just boasted in their self-awareness. So you say to your friend, well, listen, I don't think that we should think somebody's smarter or dumber than us. We're all intelligent in our own ways, and that's the position I take. And you're boasting in your humility. And there's a fourth person who's listening to you, and they quietly think to themselves, don't these people realize how arrogant and boastful they all sound? They should learn to keep those thoughts to themselves because they might offend somebody. And they are boasting in their tact and their discretion. It can go on and on and on. I mean, we are a people who boast, and of our boasting, there is no end. And some of you, you may feel right now the need to interrupt and let us all know that you don't boast. And that would be the point. In today's passage, Paul is addressing a matter of boasting. The Corinthians, they were boasting in themselves. They were boasting in their status in the world. Because in this culture, this time, it was image-obsessed, a power-seeking kind of culture. Your status in society was everything and meant everything. And all of a sudden, what happened in being a church in the city of Corinth, the culture of Corinth began to seep into the church. And so people now are coming to the church and they're boasting of their status. And so Paul is confronting the believers and the way they are thinking. He's challenging their perspective. He's challenging their worldview with the gospel, with the message of the cross. And he tells us this, that God doesn't work according to the standards of the world, which is actually foolishness in his eyes but he works according to his own wisdom. You see, God saves us with his gospel, and then by his gospel, he reverses. He flips upside down all the values, all the systems of the world. And so here's our gospel truth, that one-sentence summary. The gospel silences your boast and creates boast in Jesus. What does the gospel do? The gospel silences your boast and creates boast in Jesus. And here's why this gospel truth matters. Here's why it's important. Because in God's wisdom, when you stop boasting in yourself and you start boasting in Christ, here's what happens. You get the grace from God that you desperately need, and God gets the glory from you that he ultimately deserves. 
When you get the gospel, when it under, finally clicks, it silences your boast. You boast in Christ. And here's what happens. When you stop boasting yourself, you boast in Christ, you get the grace of God that you need. And God gets the glory that he deserves. And so I've taken my two points this afternoon from the two sections of the text. The first point is found in verses 26 to 29, and the point is simple. You did nothing, so stop boasting. The second point is found in verses 30 to 31, and it's equally simple. Christ became everything, so boast in him. Those are two simple points. You did nothing, so stop boasting. Secondly, Christ became everything, so boast in him. So point one, you did nothing, so stop boasting. Let's start at verse 26. Paul writes this. For consider your calling, brothers. All right, let's stop there. Consider your calling. What he's saying to the believers is this. Hey, remember, recall, go back and think about where you were, who you were, and what situations you were when God called you. Think about how God called you. He's telling them to remember their history, their background. Corinthians, remember how when God called you, you weren't even facing him. You had your back turned to him. Remember how you had put God on the sidelines of your life. Remember how you had made God a spectator to your life as if the show was all about you. Remember how some of you forced God to the sidelines and you made him watch you partake in your sins and and your disobedience and you were trying to be your own God. And some of you remember how you made God go to the sidelines and watch you try to save yourself through your own morality, your own obedience, and you were trying to be your own savior. Paul is saying, remember from that which God called you. And so even you here this afternoon, consider your calling. Consider where you were when God called you. Maybe you were in the darkness of sin. You were in the darkness of your own selfishness, in the darkness of your own depravity, and others were in the darkness of your own righteousness, the darkness of your own uh, self-value and worth because of who you thought, uh, what you thought you could contribute to God. Paul says, remember where you came from. Remember how God called you. And specifically, this congregation, Paul's going to address three things about them. He says, remember some of you, and he writes, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. In a culture where learning and education and wisdom, philosophy was so important, you could actually, by mastering those things, attain a celebrity-like status. And if you mastered your intellectual and speaking gifts, people not only thought you were wise, but they thought you made it. I mean, that's how you made it in that culture. And so most of these believers, they weren't wise. They weren't as skilled. They weren't educated. And so they didn't amount much to in society. Paul's reminding them of that. And then he says, not many of you were powerful. Right? In our own times, these people were powerful. They held tremendous influence over others and in society. By their reputation, their positions, they were able to sway people. I mean, they were what you consider movers and shakers in the culture. And the Christians in Corinth didn't occupy these kinds of powerful positions, so they were insignificant. And thirdly, Paul finishes by saying, not many of you were of noble birth. Meaning that the Corinthian believers weren't born into the right families, with the right pedigree and the right lineage, with the right last name. And because of that, the Corinthian believers, they weren't given a status. They didn't come from prestigious families. They were at the bottom of the totem pole. And this is what Paul's doing. By reminding them that they were neither wise nor powerful nor of noble birth, he's in fact saying this. 
you guys were nobodies. When God called you, you were a nobody. Now, this is not meant to be discouraging, although it sounds that way. You know, in our uh, sort of self-esteem, self-entitlement, pat yourself on the shoulder kind of day and age, you hear something like this, and you would write to Paul, how dare you say that? How dare you say I'm a nobody? How dare you say I'm insignificant? But when you say that, when you object in that kind of way, you're missing the point. The The point falls, the stress falls on how God has chosen to save how God has chosen to call and to love those whom the world would never commend. God loved and he chose those whom the world would never count as significant. God loved and chose those whom the world would never notice. Now, this isn't just coincidental. It's not like Paul is looking around the congregation and being like, geez, there are a bunch of losers in this room you know what, I got to encourage them. You were not born from noble birth. You were not. That's not what Paul does. It's not coincidental. In fact, the reason these people were chosen, the reason why those marginalized, those who are nobodies, those on the bottom of the totem pole, the reason they were chosen is by divine initiative, divine plan. In verse 27, it begins, but. So Paul's drawing a contrast. You were not these things. You were nobodies, but let me tell you why God chose you. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Paul, he goes back and he actually intentionally contrasts the foolish to the wise, the weak to the powerful and strong, the lowly to the noble. And not only that, but Paul uses this expression three times. He said, God chose, dot, 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 to shame, dot, dot, dot. Like he, could, he could have written in one sentence, God chose what is foolish, weak, and despised, but he doesn't. He says, God chose what is foolish, dot, 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 to shame. God chose what is weak, dot, 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 to shame. God chose what is lowly and despised, dot, 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 to shame. Why? Because Paul is emphasizing that God made it in his plan. It was God's purpose. It was God's intention to choose these believers according to their weaknesses, according to their inadequacies, according to their insignificance. That's what qualified them, that they were nobodies. And we have some youth students in here. Think about it this way. Remember, remember kickball. Remember playing kickball in uh, elementary school when you were younger. You always had two different teams. You had two different team captains. Uh, now, some of you, this is bringing back bad memories because you were the ones always picked last. Others of you are like, yeah, I love kickball. That's because you were picked first. But you'd have these two teams, and who always went first? The biggest, the strongest, the fastest kids. They were always picked first, and this left the smallest, the slowest, and the weakest kids uh, either picked last or, you know, left out of the game entirely. But I remember this. I remember when the gym teacher played with us, everything changed. Because the gym teacher was bigger, faster, stronger than all the other kids. And so whenever he went up, he would always kick a home run. If a ball came his way, he would always catch it. If a kid was running, he would always throw him out. So when he was the team captain, everything would change. All the strong, fastest kids, they hated it. Because the team captain, this gym teacher, he would always win. He would say, um, I choose, and he would pick the smallest kid. And then the tournament would come around, and he goes, I choose, and he would pick the slowest kid. And then the turn came around, I choose, 
and he would choose the weakest kid. And in this way, the kids on the fringe of the gym class, those who were on the sidelines, those who nobody paid attention to, were all of a sudden brought onto the winning team. The gym teacher chose them not because they were somebodies, but precisely because they were nobodies. He chose them not according to their strengths, but according to their weaknesses. So too, God chooses the people that the Corinthian society would have overlooked, would have passed by with without even a second thought or a slight of hesitancy. And Paul draws the contrast by saying God did this intentionally. He chose this group. He chose this group. He chose Why? To shame anybody who dare think that they could boast in themselves for why God chose them, whether it be their wisdom, their strength, or their nobility. You know, by shaming the wise, the strong, by shaming the somebodies, God is making it very clear how unimpressed he is with the things that we find so impressive. You know, we, we are impressed by people and their accomplishments. We are impressed by people's statuses, by people's uh, accolades, their achievements. But the question is this, that is great and all, but what do these things mean before the perfect and holy God of the universe? You know, in fact, let's say, because Paul actually here, he doesn't say all of you were this way. He says not many of you. But think about this. Even if you have worldly status to boast of, what does that contribute to your spiritually guilty status before God? Seriously. What does your salary or your degrees or your reputation contribute to the infinite debt you owe to God because of your cosmic treason, your rebellion, your disobedience, your backstabbing. What does anything here on earth contribute to you being guilty before your maker? And you know, when it comes to calling you by the gospel, calling you from death to life, calling you from slavery into freedom, calling you from darkness to light, calling you from orphan to child, your wisdom, your power, your nobility, they mean nothing. It contributes nothing. It accomplishes nothing. And Paul is drilling this point home. You were nobodies. None of your earthly status means anything to God when his holiness demands guiltlessness and when his justice demands punishment for sin. So why does God choose those who recognize they are nobodies in order to shame those who think they are somebodies? Why? And the answer is verse 29. So that... That's a purpose. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When God chooses the nobodies, he's silencing the boast of man. He's issuing a cosmic, this thunders across the universe. Zip it. <laughs> Shh. You're nobody. I don't want to hear another. No, no, no. Stop. You have nothing to contribute. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine you had the first case of some new disease, and it's lethal. You, you need immediate surgery. But there has never been a procedure done because there's, this has never been um, seen or recorded before. And so every expert clueless, and you're lucky because there's a doctor who commits himself to you, and he, and he dedicates the rest of his life to studying your condition and as a result, he's practiced hundreds of hours to do this surgery just for you. 
And the day of the operation arrives, and you're full of fear and anxiety, and you go into the surgery, and you're put under anesthesia, and the next thing you know, you open your eyes to a room full of family and friends, and they're crying in joy, and they're smiling ear to ear, and they're moving towards you now to shower hugs and kisses on you because the surgery went well. You know, is it fitting, or would it be fitting for you to calm everyone down in the room and say, at this time we know who deserves the highest praise and honor? Everybody, turn your attention to me. I have to admit, I, I really didn't think I could do it, but uh, when I went under and I passed out, I did my very best. Um, it looks like my best was good enough. It took a lot of concentration for me to lie there and not move at all. The first five hours, um, I couldn't find my rhythm, you know, in sleeping. Um, but for the next 10 hours, I got my second wind, and, uh, you know, I held it together, and I made the, the job for the doctor so much easier, so uh, I just want to thank me. <laughs> and uh, would you give me a round of applause? <laughs> How absurd that would be in such a situation if you did nothing and all you did was sleep and sit there for 15 hours. You have no reason to boast. In fact, the gravity of such a situation should silence you. It should shut your lips from speaking at all. As Martin Luther was known for saying, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is your sin. The, Paul, the point that Paul's making is this. Both spiritually and socially, you were nobody. You had nothing. You did nothing. You were not impressive. And then all that's important because the implication is verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that's the first point. You did nothing. So stop boasting in yourself. But as we turn, I want to focus on this. I want to explain why that is actually the best news that you could ever hear. Why starting here is actually really loving of God to do, although it sounds harsh, it's, it's difficult to swallow, it offends our sensibilities. But let me explain why this is the best news we could hear. And this is our second point. Christ becomes everything. Now, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm intentional. I'm not saying Christ did everything. Christ becomes everything. So boast in him. Paul continues, verses 30 and 31. Read with me. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, beca who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And there he's quoting Jeremiah 9, verses 23 to 24. Paul switches from saying why we shouldn't boast in ourselves to now why we should boast in the Lord. And the reason is Christ has become everything for us. What does that mean? What does it mean Christ became everything for us? We're so used to hearing the language Christ did everything for us. But let me explain it this way. Everything that we couldn't do for ourselves, everything that we couldn't provide, everything that we couldn't secure for reconciliation to God and for forgiveness of sins, Jesus becomes those things so that we can receive from him, we can receive from Jesus that which we could never achieve on our own. We are, in our tendency, human tendency or sinfulness, want to boast about everything when it comes to having our relationship with God whether it be our contribution, the good things about us, our spirituality, our religious observance, even the sincerity of our faith. We always will find and make reasons to boast in ourselves when it comes to our relationship to God. And here's what we fail to realize. This is extremely important. 
if we want to relate to God on a merit-based or works-based system, we don't have to just deal with doing some good. If you insist that you and God relate on a works-based relationship, it's not just about doing some good. You have to worry about, first, doing good enough. Second, how to deal with the bad things you've done and the bad things you continue to do. Those are our two problems. You insist, God, let's work, come on. Grace, no, 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 I'm a good person. Save me according to that. If you insist your relationship with God is on a works-based system, you have to worry about doing enough good works. You have to worry about what do you do with your bad works? Ultimately, because this is the problem, right? We cannot do enough good. For two reasons. One, God demands full obedience, perfect righteousness, absolute holiness. And secondly, we have sin nature. It renders us powerless to do these things on our own. So we can never do good enough. Secondly, God's perfect justice demands something be done with our transgressions and our iniquities. Right? Basically, I'm saying this. What are you going to do about your sin? You know, we're, a lot of times we ask God to be just in the world. We hear of beheadings in the Middle East. We hear of all these kind of injustices, and we say, God, we want you to be just. But when it comes to you, you say, but forgive me. Suspend that justice. They deserve it. Be just over them. Be gracious toward me. You see, working with God on this merit-based system does not work. God knows the problems that you and I have. And so God is saying, give this up. Or he sees where we're going. If we stay on this road, he knows the end, and he knows it does not end well. So he's saying this, trust me. Give up on yourself. It's like the raccoon who enters the hunter's trap and he grabs the bait, but because he grabs the bait and he's tugging on it, the cage comes down on him. All he needs to do is let go and the cage will open up, but he wants to hold on to it. In the same way, when you cling to yourself, you cling to your status, you cling to your works, you cling to your righteousness, you will be imprisoned. You will be judged by the very merit-based system that you're insisting be upheld but let go. Give up your righteousness. Give up your status. Entrust yourself to God and you will be set free for him to deal with you by grace. How does this work? And this is where the gospel comes in. The answer is in verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. God is going to unite you to Jesus. And when you're united to him, all of the benefits of salvation become yours. Here's what I mean. All that Christ becomes, when you're united to him, it becomes yours. Paul writes this. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us, or became for us, wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Now here's, here's the thing. This is confusing to a lot of people. Jesus became for us wisdom from God. What does that mean? Basically means this. Jesus became the answer. Jesus became the solution. That's what it means he became for us the wisdom of God. Imagine this. You're working on a project. You're working on a project, and you come across something, a difficult problem, um, an impossible problem. And so you bring all the smartest people, you know all the experts in the field to tackle that issue, but no matter their wisdom, they're clueless. And so what? You need wisdom to answer that question. So God shows up, and God lends you his wisdom he looks at the problem that we're looking at. And what's the problem? Humanity is lost in sin. But not only that, but we can't do 
enough good work to earn salvation, and we can't erase the bad work to avoid punishment, eternal punishment. That's, that's the problem, right? That's the problem with the world. We're in sin. We can't do enough to save ourselves, and we can't do enough to get rid of the punishment for the things we've done bad. But the thing is, we still try. We still try. We attempt our own solutions. And this is what uh, some people call self-salvation projects. We have these pro- our own little individual DIY, right? Do-it-yourself self-salvation projects. And for some of you, that project is legalism. You try to obey God. You try to earn favor from God. And you do this not just by obedience to God, because sometimes when you're a legalist and you're obeying God and you realize that you're failing at what God's doing, what else do you do? You create your own laws. You create your own laws and you start obeying those and you feel good because I can keep those laws. But the problem is you'll never be able to do enough to save yourself. And then some of you, your your self-salvation project is licentiousness. You try to run away from God because if there's no God, then there's no law. And if there's no law, there's no judgment. And your salvation project is trying to escape God by removing him from your life so that the only person you need to answer to is yourself. But the problem there is you're never able to escape God. Here you're not able to do enough for God. Here is you're never, you're never able to escape God. What do you do? So, so God looks over your shoulder at your little self-salvation self, uh, project and, and he just kind of you know, shakes his head and he goes, you guys think you're so clever. You think you're so wise, but you don't realize that your wisdom is utter foolishness to me. You think that you have it all figured out. You know, one time I was preaching on a pretty large congregation and I was in this pulpit and, uh, you know, a couple hundred people, and these college kids in the back, they thought they were being so slick on their cell phones because they put their cell phone in the Bible, and it looks like they're looking at the Bible, and, you know, they're like, he doesn't know, and, you know, they're doing this, and, you know, I'm up there in this pulpit, and I'm a couple feet above, I'm looking down at them, and they don't realize that the reflection from the phone is lighting their face up like a flashlight, and they're like, you know, And I'm looking at them, and I'm like, your face looks like a Christmas tree. Your wisdom. Foolishness. God sees our wisdom as foolishness. We've created all these self-salvation projects, and we think, this one will work. This will save me. This will get me off the hook. And God looks, and, and this is how good he is. God doesn't say, okay, if that's what you want, if you want to deal with me on a workspace righteousness, okay, if that's your solution, all right, let, let, let's do that. God doesn't do that. No, God says, that's not working out for you. And if I leave you alone, you're going to end up in a place you do not want to be. So let me lend to you my wisdom. Let me give to you my wisdom. And that wisdom is who? It's not a what. The wisdom is a who? Jesus Christ. He gives us Jesus Christ. And so everything that you need, everything that you lack, everything that you need to present yourself before God with, he will become those things for you. For example, you need perfect, right, guiltless standing before me. So what does it say here? Jesus will become for you righteousness. You need absolute purity and holiness to be in God's presence. So Jesus will become for you sanctification. You need to be expensively bought out of slavery to sin. So Jesus becomes for us redemption. You see, Jesus became righteousness. He became sanctification. He became redemption. Why? For us. 
Verse 30, and because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. He became righteousness. He became sanctification. He became redemption. Jesus came into the world as the wisdom of God, as the answer of God. And he became everything that we needed him to be. And so when we couldn't do enough in our good works, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. He became our righteousness and sanctification. When we couldn't do anything to address our bad works, Jesus died a perfect death of substitution for us. He became our redemption. So when you are now united to this Jesus, all that he becomes, he becomes for you. You see, this is why God is telling you, quit boasting in yourself, because as long as you do, you're going to reject grace. You are actually condemning yourself in your sin. Instead, he tells you, give up on yourself. Be united to my son so I can give you everything freely that you need for salvation. And as you get this gift of grace, as you give up boasting in yourself and you cling to the grace of Christ, what happens as a result? God gets the glory. We just sang that one song, I'm breathing in your grace. We receive grace, and what do we do? We're breathing out your praise. We receive grace from God because that's what we need. And the result of that is what? Verse 31, so that as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That the glory goes to God. We receive grace, the one thing we need. We give God then glory, what he deserves. It's not the other way around. It's not we receive grace that we deserve and we give God glory that he needs. No, 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 no. We receive the grace we need. We give to him the glory he deserves. See, when you recognize that Jesus has done all of this for you, that's so important, for you, when you receive his grace, you quit boasting yourself, God gets the glory. Boasting for us, when we boast in ourselves, is usually an attempt to lift up ourselves a little bit higher than we probably deserve. Boasting is lifting up ourselves in in, uh, a little bit of a way that maybe is not completely accurate. But when you boast in God, it's the most sobering exercise because to boast in God is merely this. Boasting in God is merely acknowledging the true extent and the depth of his grace, his love, his power, his wonder, and his kindness. When you boast in yourself, you're exaggerating. When you boast in God, you're not exaggerating. When you boast in God, you're not adding anything to him. You're not trying to make him look better than he is. Who God is is a fact. And when you rehearse those facts, because he is that great, it'll come off as boasting. Boasting God means you're seeing him for who he is and what he has done. You are just accurately ascribing to him his worth. You're accurately recognizing his goodness. This is how God gets the glory when you boast in him. And so, as we begin to conclude, as a Christian, where is your boast? Is your boast in yourself or is your boast in Christ? And here's the litmus test, three questions where you can determine where your boast is. Do you speak more highly of yourself or of Christ? Do you speak more highly of yourself or of Christ? Second, do you speak more frequently of yourself or of Christ? And thirdly, do you speak more joyfully of yourself or of Christ. 
To be a cross-eyed people, to be a cross-eyed church, we must be a people in a church whose boast is Christ. And this is the practical change that the message of the cross will make in your life. The gospel, when you get it, will silence your boast in yourself and it will create boast in Jesus. And in God's amazing wisdom, when you are a Christian, when you believe more of the gospel, and this is a lingo that for the years of ministry here, I hope you understand. The gospel is not, as Tim Keller said, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z. We don't ever move beyond the gospel. Church, listen to this. I'm saying it now. We never move beyond the gospel. We always move deeper into the gospel. See, the gospel is just not a, a set of truths that you have to assent to to be saved, which a lot of people think that's what it is. The gospel is this news that Jesus Christ died, and once I believe it, I'm saved. Now, okay, let's get started on the Christian life. No, no, no. Romans 1.16, it says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Your salvation isn't just in justification. Your salvation is your justification, your sanctification, and your glorification. It is the power of God for all three. The gospel is the power of God for you to live your Christian life. And so you never, ever move beyond the gospel, but further deeper into it. And so you get the gospel, you're saved, but how does the gospel change your heart? Because as you realize more and more, as you understand the gospel, as it penetrates your heart, what you begin to do is your eyes begin to see more and more of how little, or maybe I should put it this way, it helps you see how little work you do contributes. You know, right now, some of you can mentally assent to that, oh, I've, I've done nothing. But functionally, we actually believe the things we do matter in the sense of gaining approval before God. So if you came in here this week and you maybe yelled at your kids this morning or you got in a fight with your spouse and you come in, you know, it's always a little harder to lift your head up before God. We all know that. You have that sense of guilt where you come in and your head's a little lower. Why? Because you think you're relating to God based upon the things, you, the sins that you did. Some of you, maybe you'd, Maybe you made your wife breakfast this morning, and you feel, like a good, you feel like a good person. Maybe you did your QTs last week. You feel like a good person, so what do you do? You come into the congregation, you raise your head a little higher, right? See, you say, oh, no, I'm saved by, you know, grace alone, but the way you live your life, it's so based on laws and rules. When you, when you believe the gospel more, it deconstructs in your heart, that, you, that the things you do, the status that you have, the identity you have in this world, it deconstructs that and you realize that it means nothing. And what that will then do, it will increase your heart in thanksgiving to the Lord. Your eyes will be scaled back bigger to see all that he's done for you. And this is how the gospel works in your life. It's, it's not a one-night thing. It's how we will live the rest of our lives. It will play out the rest of our lives. But as you do this, as you realize more, Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my sanctification. Jesus is my redemption. Then your boast will change. It will silence your boast in yourself. It will create boast in God. And when you do this, you receive the grace that you desperately need and you give to God the glory he rightfully deserves. Pray with me. As we pray, actually, I, I want to do this. I want to start giving us a time, uh, just a quick time of reflection and prayer. If the Holy Spirit was speaking to you and moving in your heart, uh, let's just take a moment or two and 
just respond to God in personal prayer before I close. And we ask that your Holy Spirit was taking this very message, the words of Paul to the Corinthians, and he was speaking them into the church here at Cornerstone. And I pray, Father, that you are challenging us to consider really who our boast is in. I pray that, Lord, it would be in you. And if it's not, Lord, which is all of us, that you would begin to help us see Father, that our works matter nothing in the sense of salvation. That we are to give up on ourselves and to rely wholly on you. And in doing so, we will boast in all that you've done. I pray then, Lord, then when we boast in you, then when we understand your grace for salvation, we would not work for salvation, but we will work out our salvation. Then we will work hard to continue to boast in the name of Jesus, which gives glory to you. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, equipped with this message, God is sending us out as a people on his mission. Will you be a people who boast in Christ or boast in themselves? May the world know you as you boast in the name of Jesus. Now, may the grace, the amazing grace, of our Savior Jesus Christ who became for us righteousness, sanctification, redemption, and the love of God the Father Almighty who gave to us His wisdom, His Son, when He saw us stuck in our own little self-salvation projects. In the fellowship of the Spirit, who changes our hearts to help us see how we contribute nothing and helps us see how Christ has become it all for us. May the blessing of this triune God be with God's people both now and forever. Amen. God has shown you what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Go in peace.